Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're speaking to Sebastian Budgen in Paris for an extended conversation and overview of the upcoming French election. The first round of the election is April 23rd, and the traditional parties are being eclipsed in the polls with the surge of right-wing populist Marine Le Pen and the newcomer, Emmanuel Macron, a slick, young, banal, center-right neoliberal. We'll go beneath the surface with Sebastian Budgen to examine the political, economic, and social backdrop and look at the top electoral contenders from right to left in detail. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Sebastian Budgen with us. French elections for 2017 have their first round on April 23rd and the second round on May 7th. There are 11 candidates and Sebastian is going to give us an overview on the candidates and their worldview and their electoral chances. But this all happens in the context of the rise of right-wing populism in the world seen in the United States with the election of Donald Trump, in Britain with Brexit, which has now been officially triggered, and the spectacular rise of right-wing populist Marine Le Pen in France. But also in France, there's a left, as there always has been, to the left of Hollande's Socialist Party, which was thoroughly discredited for its austerity and anti-labor legislation. Sebastian Budgen, he'll talk tonight also about the candidates on the left, especially Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and we'll get a better picture of the whole sort of political economic scene in France. So welcome, Sebastian Budgen. And let me just say, Sebastian is an editor of Reverso Books. He's a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine, and he serves on the editorial board of Historical Materialism and organizes its pretty spectacular annual conferences that appear around the world, but especially in London. And Sebastian is speaking to us from Paris. Sebastian, let's just begin with the presidential campaign. And maybe you could just give us the context about where the candidates come from and out of what political economic situation. Sure. Well, I think it's fair to say that the situation politically is one of crisis, deep crisis. The two historic blocks that alternated power in France in the Sith Republic, so since the early 1960s, that is to say that the parties of the centre-right and the parties of the centre-left, the latter sometimes allied with parties to the left of them, like the Communist Party, those two blocs are deeply fissured and disintegrating. And it's quite possible that out of the result of these elections, there may be very little left of those traditional parties. So it's a deep, deep political crisis. And of course, since politics have caused a vacuum, new forces or rejuvenated older forces are coming to try to place themselves on the scene. The force that is, of course, the best known outside of France is the Front National, the National Front, which is a far-right party, which has changed its image and its language, but it's still a far-right party and is very high in the polls. It's got the highest poll rating at the moment for the first round. There are two rounds, of course, as you said, the first round in April and then a runoff between the two highest candidates in May. So it is extremely likely that Marine Le Pen, the leader of the Front National, will be one of the two candidates in the runoff. This is quite unusual. This is in the line of other, I guess, electoral upsets that we're seeing around the world, not in the U.S. so much because it's the traditional parties, but say Spain, Greece, where parties that 
formerly either didn't exist or would not have contested in the main are now right in the forefront. Would you say that this is really a new situation for France in that regard? Absolutely, yeah. France is catching up with some of the countries of the south of Europe in as much as there is a complete liquefaction of the centre parties and the parties on the far right and far left have new space to grow and to organise. So as I said, the vacuum is being filled on the one hand by the Front National on the far right, which is doing extremely well, and on the left, a much more fragmented scene, but clearly a very dynamic campaign being run by Jean-Luc Mélenchon to the left of the Socialist Party. So it's a political crisis, and I think it's obviously also in the context of very, very low, if not nil, economic growth, high levels of unemployment, structurally ingrained levels of unemployment, austerity, as you said, and recently big social conflicts last spring over labor law reforms to try and flexibilize the labor market. And I would say also it's a kind of moral crisis in terms of politics because there is an extremely deep now distrust, if not hatred, of the political class by the vast majority of the population. And there's an extremely high level of uncertainty about how people are going to vote. About a third of voters still say they don't know who they want to vote for, which is extremely high level for French standards at this late stage in the election. And it's quite possible there will also be a high level of abstention, which will have an effect, obviously, on the outcome. So I would say it's a three-pronged crisis, a political crisis, a social crisis, socioeconomic crisis, and a kind of moral crisis. Sebastian, I think to step back for just a second, these spectacular strikes, blockades, and demonstrations, the Nuit Debout, that really rocked the world stage, but especially the French stage, just one year ago. I guess in politics, a year can be a very long time, but maybe you could describe the shift in that period. And again, in the context of, is it because of the terrorist attacks that things moved? Or is it the worsening economic situation, the rise of populace elsewhere? How would you sort of account for this shift in terms of who's getting the attention of those who are left behind in the economy? Well, the terrorist attacks, of course, happened uh, before the spring protests, and they happened in November before the spring protests against the labor law reform. So, mm. you know, the whole political situation has been polarized in both directions, both in a, a law and order direction, an anti-terrorist, a state of emergency kind of direction, and fortunately, in the other direction around social conflicts. But it's really been pulling in both ways. And of course, it's in the context of a government that was elected with not enormous, but a certain degree of enthusiasm after and sigh of relief, really, by many French voters after the Sarkozy years and a government led by François Hollande that wasn't promising enormous reforms, but was claiming that it was going to rein in the power of finance, was going to fight for greater social equality and be a more reasonable and less embarrassing kind of government than the Sarkozy government was beforehand. And of course, it's proved to be quite the opposite. It's proved to be a completely incompetent government, a government which has failed on all of its social promises, which indeed has pushed very aggressive neoliberal reforms that a right-wing government wouldn't have been able to push through, and which is also involved in many war zones now in Africa and the Middle East, an aggressive and belligerent government. So in the context of this kind of complete collapse, moral collapse of the Hollande government, that there's a, a great deal of disillusionment about the political process as a whole. And if you want to know why 
far right is doing so well at the moment, this is not a new phenomenon. The far right has been growing consistently, and there have been ups and downs, but the trend has been upward for the last 15 years, so this is no surprise. And it's clearly a product of, in part, a protest vote against what is seen as the establishment, so a similar phenomenon as in the U.S., a vote of disgust, of outrage, of wishing to shake things up against what are seen as the establishment parties that are mired in incompetence and corruption, it has to be said, uh, with numerous recent corruption scandals that uh, we'll talk about probably later. Okay, well, let's go straight into, because you've talked about a political vacuum and the rise of these candidates and their positions. The question that I want to ask is, given the economic situation and perhaps, let's say, the reaction to the politics of austerity and the French response to that, how would you describe Marine Le Pen's political stance that she has now, it seems like, standing on almost a a working class program, one that is anti-austerity, supports the welfare state. It's not the kind of right-wing populism that we see elsewhere in exactly the same way. No, you're right. The Front National in the 1980s, for example, under her father's leadership, was very much pro-Reagan, was a neoliberal party, was a party was pro-Europe, has to be reminded, that believed in the European Union, and it was strongly, of course, against the inflated, uh, supposedly inflated state machine, against trade unions, of course, and fairly straightforwardly neoliberal this, of course, accorded with the traditional base of the Front National, which was its petty bourgeois, low middle class, lower management base, which believes that, you know, by stripping the state of its supposed obesity, the market will be freed and so on. And that is a base that is also regionally specific. It had very strong base in the south of France, also partly because of the presence of the so-called Pienois people, French white people who fled North Africa when Algeria and so on gained independence after the Second World War and who continue to generally be pretty right-wing, especially on questions of immigration. What has happened with Marine Le Pen is that the discourse has been quite radically shifted towards a, as you say, pro-welfare state, anti-austerity, anti-ultra-liberalism, anti-globalism, as they call it, program, which has been successful in picking up votes amongst traditional working-class areas in the north of France. Not, it has to be said, generally voters who would have voted left beforehand. Generally, they've picked up voters from the right-wing working-class vote, if you like, although some left voters also but it's combined with a very high degree of abstention in those working-class areas. So it means that those workers who do vote are voting overwhelmingly for Marine Le Pen and the Front National. And there's also been a shift on racism, on the traditional racist line, the anti-Semitic aspects of her father's discourse have been dropped, at least for the public view, and Islamophobic and anti-Arab racism has been pushed to the fore much more. I've presented. Yeah, I was just going to ask you to amplify that a little bit, because is this the case that that also appeals to, let's say, disgruntled former people who would have voted, say, for the Communist Party, but now have shifted to the right? Is, is there an anti-immigrant stance that's stronger on their part than, say, desire to protect the social welfare economy? Well, what she's managed to do is combine quite shrewdly the notion that France needs to protect itself from globalization, from ultra-liberalism, from the globalized elites, 
as they say, needs to engage in protectionist, national-centered form of development, which defends the welfare state against these pressures, with the notion that, therefore, as a consequence of that, immigration needs to be radically reduced, and then ally that with the notion that within France itself, the problem isn't just immigration, the problem is people in France themselves who becoming radical Islamists or conducting what they call communitarian campaigns around Muslim communities, turning in on themselves, uh, not integrating or assimilating to French culture and so on. So all those themes are linked together in quite a, an effective and shrewd kind of way, and it is presented, yes, as a program to defend the common people, the common French people, of course. It's understood, never explicitly said that those are, generally speaking, the white French working class, but these things are supposedly all coherently allied with each other. The notion of nationalism, protectionism, defense of the welfare state, hostility to immigration and hostility to Islam and to so-called Islamic communitarianism. I'm speaking with Sebastian Budgen in Paris, and we're talking about the coming up elections in France. The first round is going to be on April 23rd, the 2nd, May 7th. One of the questions that I want to ask before we move on to the other candidates, it seems that Marine Le Pen has eclipsed the other more traditional right-wing candidates and is at this moment, according to the latest poll, right neck and neck for coming out first, as you said earlier. But what about, given that Theresa May in in Britain triggered the beginning of Brexit. What about the position of Frexit, the French exit from the Eurozone or the Euro, at least? Is that something that is very important in this election? Well, it's the theme that is pushed on and off by the Front National. Marine Le Pen says that if she wins the election, she'll call a referendum on exiting the Euro and probably also the European Union, and that she claims that she would accept the result, whatever it turns out to be. She's not always putting that to the fore because it's clearly a theme that upsets a part of her electoral base. The working class base is probably quite favorable to that. The more petty bourgeois base and those people in the party who are not happy with this social discourse that she's putting forward, who think it's too left-wing, quote-unquote, are quite worried about this Frexit perspective and it obviously would upset capital, French capital, enormously. It's a theme she's not putting forward consistently, but it is one of her programmatic planks. Okay, so let's move a little bit, because we can't spend all of our time on Le Pen, to some of the other candidates. And I'd rather put off just for the moment the left response, but maybe you could just talk for a second, Sebastian Budgen, about, let's say, what happened to Filon, and then also perhaps introduce into this context Macron and what he stands for. Yeah, sure. So François Fillon was the surprise winner of the primary of the centre-right. Most people thought that the primary would be a runoff between Nicolas Sarkozy, previous uh, president, and Alain Juppé, who was the prime minister under Jacques Chirac, and who presented a more traditional, moderate centre-right image. In fact, neither of them won, and François Fillon, the third man, if you like, in the campaign, won an overwhelming surprise victory on an extremely radical Thatcherite, as he described it himself, Mm. program of massive cuts to the welfare state, of massive changes to labor law regulations and working hours conditions, a very thoroughgoing Thatcherite program. And his base was clearly the party members and those people who are feel close to the party, the Republicans, uh, were very enthused by this. 
program he was putting forward, and that also included a, a large section of the right-wing Catholic vote, which had campaigned a few years ago against gay marriage in the streets of Paris and elsewhere. So it was an extremely radical neoliberal and neoconservative platform, and it won him a big victory, and it was a big surprise. But he has plunged now in the polls because of a number of scandals that he has been implicated in, involving him employing fictitiously, you know, doing fictitious work, his wife as a parliamentary assistant, various expensive suits that were gifted to him by uh, rich businessmen who clearly were trying to get favors. So his whole image, which distinguished him from Sarkozy as a, a guy on the right, but who had integrity, wasn't dishonest, wasn't bling bling, was somebody who was going to represent the traditional French bourgeoisie in its all its propriety and so on, has been completely dismerged by these scandals. And it has to be said that anyway, his initial electoral program, which so infused his base, wasn't going to be a real winner for the election because there's not a lot of enthusiasm in France generally for a neoliberal swinging attack on the welfare state and on social security. So anyway, he's plunged into the depths and the other side of the traditional spectrum, the centre-left, the Socialist Party, has also plunged into the depths with another surprise winner of the primary process. Benoit Hamon, who's on the left, comes from the left of the party, mm. won the primary process against Manuel Valls, the former prime minister, very much a right-wing Socialist Party figure, but has been completely dropped and stabbed in the back by the traditional leadership of the Socialist Party, many of whom are going over to join Emmanuel Macron. Well, before we go to Macron, it seems now fitting to give the context for it, because you just mentioned Hamon and, and the French Socialist Party and the Hollande government famously came to power not promoting austerity and then made a switch, but then proceeded to announce this new labor legislation that was responsible for this giant surge of strikes and demonstrations and blockades that seemed to unite not just young people and traditional trade unionists, but literally most of the working class and supporting the kind of strikes that maybe those of us on this side of the Atlantic are more accustomed to see in France. And so maybe in giving the political context, Sebastian Budgen, you can say, what happened at the end of those several months of protests and then how that's reflected in these candidates now to the left of center. Right. The Hollande government made a number of very, from its own perspective, stupid mistakes by, first of all, giving enormous presents out to the employer class in terms of tax breaks and so on, then opening a whole debate about stripping dual nationals of their French nationality if they were guilty of terrorist attacks, which opened a whole debate about having French citizenship, double-tier French citizenship, which is considered a big moral fault by many people on the left, and then these labor law reforms that provoked these enormous protests. So in the process of taking all these measures, a minority within the Socialist Party, the so-called Fondeur, constituted itself and started voting consistently against the government in the parliament and constituted something of a pebble in the shoe of the government. And Benoit Hamon, who was minister for the first couple of years of the Hollande government, resigned as minister, became a key figure amongst his opposition MPs and campaigned in the primary process, largely against the balance sheet of the Socialist Party government. And as a process of this rejection of the Oran government, he won the primary process in a quite surprising manner. Everybody was expecting that, again, according to a normal 
quote-unquote equations that Manuel Valls, the former prime minister, would win on a kind of strongman ticket, strong against terrorism, identification with law and order, kind of reassuring figure of security, and so on. And he was roundly beaten by Benoit Hamon, who was able to outflank him not only by criticizing the Socialist Party government's record, but also putting forward a number of new themes, such as the universal basic income, and trying to argue that we need to think about uh, growth and employment in new ways that infused a whole layer of the Socialist Party electorate, especially young people. And so he won that primary, but was very quickly dropped. Is that also by the... The UBI or the universal basic income, is that also a theme that's being expressed generally in the election or just on the part of Hamon? Well, it's a theme that has imposed itself on the political debate and in the big political TV debate. It was criticized by all the other candidates and it's clearly identified with Amor. I have to say it has a limited purchase uh, because it essentially appeals to younger people, I would say, and a particular socioeconomic bracket. It's not a demand that has an enormous popular appeal, but it was a new theme and it was relatively innovative for him to impose it. And he also took a quite brave, for French standards, position rejecting Islamophobia and the exploitation of state secularism as a way of harassing and oppressing Muslims. So he was able to carve out a niche for himself as somebody who was new and fresh and who wasn't tainted by his association with the Hollande government. Okay, so let's move then to, right now it looks like, as I stated, the polls today are showing a surprising surge for Macron. Could you tell us about what he represents and what his views are? Yeah, well, Macron is in in many ways a kind of completely empty figure, but as an empty figure, he's a good representation of the vacuum that's emerged in French politics with the collapse of the two traditional polls. So Macron is a very young candidate. He's 39 years old. He studied philosophy. Then he was the assistant of Paul Ricoeur, the French philosopher. Then he moved into investment banking, was banker for a couple of years for Rothschild Bank, made a lot of money in that process, and then became an advisor to Hollande, the president, and then minister for the economy, and resigned a few months ago. He's a very character. He reminds one perhaps of Tony Blair in his early days. Mm. Quite presentable, some would say attractive, doesn't seem to be aggressive, doesn't seem to be carrying any deep personal issues, unlike some of the candidates, but has a completely empty discourse. He's clearly a neoliberal. He's very openly in favor of neoliberal reforms. He claims not to be of the left or of the right, but want to take good ideas from both sides, traditional discourse I think we'll all recognize and he's a kind of Stepford candidate, he's like a robot I have to say in the TV debates because he comes out with very well delivered lines but which mean simply nothing, which are completely empty of any content except when he's talking about the economic reforms that he wants to put forward and these economic reforms it has to be remembered are also tightly integrated to his very strong commitment to the European Union and to maintaining all the European Union's constraints on any government's room for manoeuvre in terms of budget deficit and debt and so on. I was just going to say, this is quite a very good vignette or portrait of this candidate. It's kind of a figure that we're used to seeing these days, an empty suit perhaps. But 
The Financial Times says that he is advocating, we're talking about Mr. Macron, is advocating a Nordic-style economic model for France. And you've said that he's really well within the neoliberal sort of political economic world. But even the Financial Times says that he wants modest spending cuts over a longer period of time and a modest stimulus package at the same time, lower taxes, but still in favor and extending the welfare state. But maybe I could ask you to just comment on that before we move further to the left and also why he seems to be doing so well in the polls. Is he doing well in the polls because people are worried about the other two extremes? Well, I would say a number of things. Firstly, he is a neoliberal candidate. He's not in favor of Scandinavian social democracy, whatever the Financial Times might say. I mean, Fillon is the neoliberal candidate with a snarl. And Macron is the neoliberal candidate with a smile. Clearly, what he's proposing in terms of cuts and reforms are less severe, less massively radical than those proposed by Fillon. He claims that in return there will be this or that kind of flexible security or this or that kind of compensation. But they are neoliberal reforms. Nobody doubts that at all. Why is he so popular? Well, several reasons. I think firstly because he's not a politician. He's a non-politician politician. He's never been elected. His membership of the Socialist Party was extremely brief, if existent at all. I think he was never seen at any meetings and never participated in the internal life of the party in any serious way. And he's, quote-unquote, from civil society. So people see him as, those who support him see him as someone fresh, as somebody who's not tainted by the incompetence and turpitudes of the traditional political class. Secondly, those people who are in favor of neoliberal reforms think that perhaps he'll be a fresh broom who will sweep away the resistance in a way that the traditional parties of the right or the left can't do. And he claims he'll have a cabinet full of entrepreneurs and people from civil society and representatives of the right and the left and so on. So it's a dream. It's a kind of wet dream of those who want to explode the party system, get rid of the left-right division in French politics, move towards some kind of consensual centrist, extreme centre-type politics without having to deal with parties or those kinds of problems. And yes, I think also simply success is breeding success at the moment. He's emerged, he's imposed himself on the scene as this new force who's filled this vacuum, as they say, produced by the collapse of the right and left poles. And now the key challenger in the polls at the moment, I think things may change over the next few weeks, but at the moment... He's seen as the person who would be facing off Marine Le Pen in the second round. So there's now a whole argument about is it a wasted vote to vote for Benoit Hamon or any other candidate, given mm. that the key issue is to keep Marine Le Pen out of the Elysee Palace. So that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy aspect is also been at work. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're speaking to Sebastian Budgen in Paris. Well, let's Um, go back. If you don't mind, Sebastian Budge, and I'm glad that we're spending the time to go through this fairly thoroughly. And I want to come back to, as you say, what the final runoff might be and what's at stake. But let's talk about the left challenge, because this is something that I know our listeners will know less about and be more interested in and just to see what place Mélenchon occupies in French society and how he relates to what went on all over the last year with those spectacular strikes and how they petered out. Would you perhaps give a rounded sort of explanation of who he is and where he stands from and where he comes from? Sure. Well, Jean-Luc Mélenchon was, in his youth, he was a, a Trotskyist, and he then joined the Socialist Party in the 1970s. 
He was one of the youngest senators for the Socialist Party. He was very close initially to François Mitterrand. He still sees François Mitterrand as a kind of political hero for him, but he was on the left of the party almost consistently through the 80s and 90s in the left minority of the party. And the shift really happened for him in 2005 when there was the campaign against the European Constitutional Treaty, which was supported by both the right and the Socialist Party. They were for a vote for the European Constitutional Treaty, and there was a big popular campaign against it, which was successful in the end. And Menachem was involved in this campaign, and I think he saw the possibility finally for life outside of the Socialist Party after many decades of being inside, trapped with inside it. And he then split a couple of years later, created his own formation called the Left Party, Small Party, and then hooked up with the Communist Party and some other forces to create what was known as the Left Front, on whose platform he ran in 2012 and got a very respectable result of 11%, some 4 million votes. Wasn't he a part of the anti-capitalist party? Was he a part of the anti-capitalist party? And what happened to it? Is that part of the front, in other words? No, no. The new anti-capitalist party is the far left, if you like. Um, oh, okay. Beyond, to the left of the left front. There are two far left formations. To the left of the left front, who are also running in this election, the, the so-called small candidates, which are Lutovier, Workers' Struggle, okay. and the new anti-capitalist party. Okay. But uh, Mélenchon had never had anything to do with them. He is somebody who describes himself as a Republican socialist, very much standing on, as I say, he identifies with Mitterrand and the, the traditional left of the Socialist Party. But he's an extremely interesting candidate because he's an extremely effective orator. He can also be really wickedly funny. And he has much greater cultural range than any of the other candidates. He's clearly a highly cultivated person, and he has a political vision which is much more ambitious than anybody else on the left. Whatever one thinks of that vision, and there are a lot of things that are highly problematic with the political vision that he has, it's a very constructed, complex vision about geopolitics, about ecology, about the constitution. He wants a new sixth republic, wants to call a constituent assembly that would then institute a new sixth republic, and then he claims he would resign from the presidency if that were instituted, and so on. He has a very complex and and rich political program, which is much more impressive and deeply thought through than any of the other left candidates. And is it Um, something that you could characterize in terms that, say, the left is more familiar with? Is it left social democratic? Is it something else? It's left social democratic, but it's left social democratic that's able to hitch on to new themes. For example, on ecology, he has engaged in a whole kind of mea culpa about his former left identity being tied to notions of endless uh, growth and so on. And he put forward this, I think, quite clever idea of what he calls ecological planning. Trousseau bringing Mm. together the theme of planning, traditional to the left, and the notion of ecology and saying that only by planning can the ecological dangers be addressed in a systematic and realistic way. He wants to introduce into the Constitution a green measure, which means that no resources can be taken from the earth that cannot be replaced. So he wants to actually put that into the new constitution. So he's able to hitch onto these themes, also some questions to do with gender, politics, and so on. He is able, and he's also very active on the internet. He's one of the most popular French politicians, where he has his own YouTube channel, very active on Twitter and so on. So it is traditional left social democracy in some ways, but it's able to renew itself by relationship to new themes and new forms of communication. It's polling at 15% today, which in American terms would be quite significant. 
campaign is extremely effective, and in the political debate, on the TV political debate, everybody thought he was the best, or with Marine Le Pen, the other best candidate in terms of his kind of answers he was giving, the, the way his refusal to fall into the trap of just coming out with rogue responses and is making jokes at the expense of the other candidates was extremely effective. So, yeah, there's a real dynamic momentum going on in his campaign at the moment. However, I think despite all these positive things that one can say about and are showing comparison with the other actors in the political spectrum, I think there are lots of important criticisms that one can make of both his political stance on numerous questions and his modus operandi as a political operator. I think the first thing to say is that the campaign he's conducting this election is quite different from the campaign he conducted in 2012 for at least one important feature, namely that in 2012 he was campaigning under the banner of the Left Front, which is an electoral front bringing together the Communist Party, the Left Party, a number of former members of the new anti-capitalist party and some other smaller groups. And Mélenchon was the presidential candidate of that whole electoral front. For this campaign in 2017, he's created a completely new organization called La France Insoumise, Unbowed France, or Non-Submissive France. And he is the candidate of this structuralist organization, has left behind the left front, uh, no longer really refers to it anymore and no longer even refers to his own party, the left party. Now, this is partly because he fell out with the Communist Party for justified reasons. They were desperate to try and get a, a unified left candidate, which in practice would have meant falling behind the Socialist Party candidate. Uh, and he broke away from that and said he refused to engage in any of those negotiations. But it is true that it's a much more personalized campaign than in 2012. And this tyranny of structurelessness that he's created with this new organization reproduces a lot of the features that one can see as highly problematic, for example, with Podemos, namely the idea of a campaign focusing on one particular charismatic figure and then a lack of democratic structures for building grassroots organizations. So that's one important criticism that one could make of the current campaign. It's a different style as well, but that's not necessarily all bad, although I would say there are some real limitations to the campaign that he's carrying out at the moment. I think the other criticisms one can make are, are much more longer-standing ones of his political perspective. Jean-Luc Mélenchon has described himself as a Republican socialist, and he takes that definition very seriously. Namely, he identifies the project, the new Sixth Republic that he wants to realize, and the social projects behind him. He identifies this as a kind of continuation and prolongation of the French Republican tradition going all the way back to the French Revolution. And of course, there were lots of positive features about the French Republican tradition going back to the French Revolution, but there's also a dark side, which he doesn't really face up to, a dark side of, of course, complicity in colonialism, in colonial massacres, and of course, the exclusion of all sorts of groups from the Republic, like women, for example, throughout its history. So there's a kind of idealization of a Republican tradition within his political thought, which means, for example, on questions like race and religion, he takes a very abstract universalist position, which can seem fine at face value, but when you dig deeper, it's actually a complete refusal to take seriously questions of racialization of whole populations of North African origin in France or Islamophobia.
and he is very strongly identified with a position of laicite, state secularism, which he claims is even-handed, you know, against both the Catholic Church and Islam and other religions. But of course, in practice, it's not the Catholic Church that is suffering from oppression, it's Muslims. So there is a real problem with his refusal, very stubborn refusal to take seriously the question of Islamophobia and racism, which is in contrast to the way he's progressed on a number of different issues, as I mentioned before, ecology, but also, you know, trans issues and lots of other issues where he's taken quite seriously the new, what we used to be called the new social movements. On this issue, he just refuses to integrate it at all into the software. And then there's the fact that he really identifies with the French state in every aspect. He really sees the French state in its republican form as defending the common interests of humanity, which, you know, on one philosophical level, as a sort of extension, as I say, of the French revolutionary emancipatory gesture is, is one thing. But what it also translates into is an identification with the French state in its actual repressive form. So he's very complimentary about the police, of course, but also about the French army, including uh, the French army's role in different military fronts that have been opened up by François Hollande. And there's a whole grandiosity about his discourse about France being a strong power which needs to assert itself, which is positive in the sense that he wants it to assert itself independently from the US. He wants France to pull out from NATO, for example. But there is still an identification with what is basically still the legacy of French imperialism. He's quite cautious, for example, not to openly apologize for French colonial crimes. He doesn't identify, of course, with French colonialism, but he doesn't want to apologize for them either. He wants to have it both ways. So this identification with the French state, with its power, with its ability to position itself on the world stage and so on, is really quite problematic because it means that he can't develop an independent left foreign policy that doesn't look at certain times like some pretty problematic geopolitical positions. I mean, he's been accused of being very close to Putin, for example, or being soft on Assad and so on. And some of those criticisms are unfair. Some of them are closer to the mark. Sebastian, there's been rumors that there's some kind of alliance or vote-sharing pact going on between Amon and Mélenchon. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's extremely unlikely. I think there are various people on the left who would like one of them to pull out of the race in the interests of having a united left vote. And it does mean that if that were to happen, there would be a much higher likelihood of the left candidate getting through to the runoff. But I think it's extremely unlikely. Mélenchon is certainly not going to withdraw his candidacy. He started his campaign a year ago, and it's his candidacy that is the one that has the most momentum. He's up to 15%, if not more, in the polls at the moment. And the only situation in which Amor might possibly withdraw is if his campaign collapses completely, and he's certainly declining rapidly at the moment. But I think it's extremely unlikely, because it would really spell out a suicide note, really, by the Socialist Party to do such a thing. So it would be resisted to the last moment. Sebastian, does Mélenchon have any critique or any difference with the Eurozone's policy on deficit spending, or does he go along with it? He's made a lot of progress since 2012 on this issue. and He now participates in a number of conferences across Europe for a plan B. Basically, his position is that if he's elected, he will argue with Germany to try and change the criteria for the European treaties to allow more room for manoeuvre for deficit spending and, and other things. But he has a plan B in his back pocket, as it were. He's not going to go to the table naked, as the Greeks did. And if that is resisted to the last moment, some kind of exit from the euro 
would be argued for. So he thinks that there's a, a plan A, which is to go in, disobey the treaties and try to get them changed, and a plan B, which is, should that fail, then a left Frexit strategy would have to be seriously put on the table, probably through a referendum. It sounds like if you would characterize Macron as somebody who is sort of in the mainstream right, it may end up that the two top candidates that emerge come more from the right and that the left, even though you're showing it has some significant support, may not be present in the runoff. And maybe in responding to that, just explain as briefly as possible for Americans how this first round and second round work in France. Sure. Well, there will be a first round, which, as I say, the top two candidates then move through to the, the second round. The key problem for the left in the first round is that it's divided. There are four candidates representing the left, two small candidates, as I say, of the far left, plus the Socialist Party candidate, plus the France Insoumise uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon candidate. And, of course, if there were only one candidate rather than two big candidates of the left, it's quite possible the left would be able to make it to the second round but that's not going to happen. So the left vote is divided, and it's quite likely that the left will not make it to the second round, although, again, caveat, the polls can change a third of voters haven't yet made up their mind and so on and so forth. So the key question will be not so much who makes it through to the second round. Things continue in their current form, but what the exact placing will be and whether Jean-Luc Mélenchon will beat the Socialist Party candidate to become the fourth or perhaps even third in the ranking. That would be massive. That would be an enormous event in terms of French politics and would probably spell the end, or at least an extremely difficult period for the French Socialist Party. It could be the pacification, as, ah. as we said about the Greek Socialist Party, of the French Socialist Party. That's very interesting. Okay, so now let's say, given that you've, you've said, Sebastian, that the second round will probably feature... Macron and Le Pen, so that's not anyone representing the left. What would happen if Le Pen wins? What's at stake if you have a populist right-wing candidate like Le Pen, as unorthodox as her program seems to be to other uh, right-wing populists? Can you speculate for us? I think all bets are off, to be honest. I mean, it depends. It would then depend on whether she got a legislative, she got a majority in the legislative elections, which are a month later. It's extremely unlikely. So you might get a situation where she would be elected president, but uh, she would not have a majority in the National Assembly. And then you'd have some kind of complex process where perhaps a sector of the right would want to try and do a deal with her to pass certain measures, at least. It's starting uh, to sound very but, much like the Trump administration and the hard right of the Republican Party. Right, right, right. So she could, you know, that would certainly split the, the right wing parties and probably lead to the end of them, too. In terms of the measures, it shouldn't be forgotten that despite the discourse that she's putting forward, she still represents a far-right force. She's still very close to a number of open neo-fascists. The Front National controls its members in terms of it showing, displaying openly uh, violence towards uh, immigrants or leftists, but it's clear that many of them are straining at the leash to be given a chance to uh, lash out. And a lot would depend on the response, to be honest. Would people basically be so cowed and depressed by the result that they would not react? Or would it lead to a kind of massive upsurge, as in the 1930s, against the far right, leading to, you know, potentially proto-insurrectionary situations? The whole range gamut of possibilities is open if that event were to take place. What is certain, though, is that even if she doesn't win this time round, 
Macron wins and pushes through his uh, neoliberal reforms, he'll simply be warming the seat, as it were, for her in 2022. But let's just speculate finally on if Macron wins, because it would be sort of continuation of the status quo, but a little bit further to the right, or maybe not, than Hollande. And given the situation of the economy that you've described and the discontent brewing throughout the society, what would that represent if he became the president of France? Well, I think he would want to push through these neoliberal reforms in a much more consistent and unhesitating way than previous governments have done, who've you know pushed forward and then backed down and pushed forward and then backed down. I think he'd want to do it much more consistently. And he would do it with this appearance of novelty, this appearance of openness to civil society, this appearance of somehow breaking with the system. He's positioned himself as an anti-system candidate, which is very ironic given his social background and his political positioning. Again, everything would depend on the level of resistance. Would this lead to a situation where everybody was conned into believing that it's going to be somehow an easier, better situation than previously? Or would it lead to a federation of the left, the radical left, and of the trade unions to oppose him at every step? The most optimistic and the most pessimistic predictions are allowed at this point. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much, Sebastian Budgen, for staying up this late and giving us this excellent overview of what's at stake and who's represented in the French elections that are coming up at the end of this month, or not quite the end of this month. Sebastian is an editor for Verso Books and a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine, and serves on the editorial board of Historical Materialism and is one of the, let's call it, motor forces behind their spectacular conferences around the world, and is joining us from Paris. We'd like to have you back once the French round is over to see what happens next. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Budget for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thanks, Lily. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.